welcome on in no man's land episode six of 2023 for the fellas boys are buzzing got busy lives for everybody right now i've just coached four matches over the last two days fully picking up dubs left and right keith i think you're playing tennis <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just happy to be out of the dungeon i know it's sad for some of our viewers to comment that we're that i'm in the dungeon down here but i will be moving to a office upstairs so i'm kind of pumped about that yeah we're gonna i'm gonna stay away from my tennis expeditions as of late hasn't been impressive but i'm getting a microphone so keith i'm gonna be joining you with the microphone microphone fireside. can you do fireside fireside chats with uh coach keith <laughs> Yeah, so got a match tonight. Gonna get back on the get back on the right side of things. So there we go. That's the right attitude. Your boy Coach Key's having a good year. I think I'm like eight and two on the year. So okay, your, boy, your boy's feeling your boy's feeling fine right now. The road to four or five. It it's it started it started early. It started December. Love it. Well, let's jump right in. Big big week on on both tours. Uh, we had two fifty down in Delray. And then Buenos Aires as well, the second second uh, tournament down in Argentina. And then Rotterdam, indoor tournament, ATP 500, and then Doha. That's right. Uh, Delray, winner, Fritz. Guy can't stop winning right now. He's up to number five in the world. He jumps up above Nadal. Nadal's down to seven. Uh, so that's who he's trading places with. Uh, pretty amazing for Fritz, the rise the past, let's say, year, year and a half. Um, Buenos Aires, Alcaraz comes back. Escape from Alcaraz. He's back. He played Buenos Aires, uh, taking a page out of Rude last year. Don't play at the beginning of the year, and then all of a sudden win your first tournament when you come back. Rotterdam, Medvedev, Keith, props to us. We picked the winner. I mean, like mine, it's just amazing. And then Doha. Spiontech probably dropped like what four or five games and ended up winning the tournament. It's amazing what she did this week. And Keith, I know you got a fun stat on her. Yeah, no, that's a lot we just rattled off. The best stat that I've seen, maybe in like recent tennis history, was the stat that Iga Swantek spent three hours on court in her entire run to the finals at a 500 event. So she won two matches like 0 and 1, had a walkover and won the final, I think 3 and 0. For context of how short amount of time that was, last year's Nadal Zverev semifinals at the French Open was at a 3-hour match at 7556. So they did not finish two sets in the time it took Iga Swiatek to win an entire fucking tournament. She played an entire tournament and won before Nadal was like picking his wedgie at five, six and like wiping <laughs> the sweat off his head. Like that's ridiculous. Like that's, it's the stupidest stat I've ever seen. Yeah. Like today's, I know she's playing tomorrow in Dubai. This one last week she played that tournament. She just won was Doha. So like, you know, short trip, but she's playing tomorrow in Dubai playing Layla Fernandez. And I'm like, or don't you want to take some time off like in between like and i'm just thinking then i go and check the stat list and, and yeah, who's you know how she won these matches and it's like she had a breeze of a week she had, she's had practices longer than it took for her to win to win that tournament like she's probably practiced like on a rough day longer than she had to win that like, i think she was probably just like i feel fresh i was supposed to like wear myself out i'll go do it and i think uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think Doha last year is when she started her huge run of like winning like 40 straight matches, and uh, and 
no place like home. I mean, you win four matches in three hours. That ain't half bad. Yeah. Also, Doha last year was the first time she spoke about uh, Ukraine. She's still supporting the uh, the ribbon on her hair on her uh, hat, and she actually beat a Russian in the final. So some food for thought there. Um, transitioning to the men's side, where do you want to go here, guys? Buenos Aires, Rotterdam, or Delray? Yeah, De- Delray. I mean, you brought up Fritz. Uh, a buddy of mine sent in a funny video to our group chat. He his friend was down at the Delray tournament and saw Fritz on the practice court and held up the video and he said, Hey, I'm buddies with our friend Evan, uh, who they knew from growing up. Anything to say to Evan? And he just looked in the camera and he goes, Yeah, it's almost forehand still shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think maybe I'm gonna ask if we can post that on our page because it is hilarious. Like you, you have that video? Oh yeah. And you think he's just gonna be like, Oh, like, what's up, Evan? Like, hope you're doing well. He's like, uh yeah your forehand's still shit <laughs> i'm like that is amazing i mean a, but good tournament for fritz he's up to five in the world like like cole said it's a weird fifth spot because the, the points difference between the top four and fifth Huge. is gargantuan it's like two thousand points yeah it, it, it's it's i think the other i think fritz is something like 3600 points and then like fourth is 5,500 points. So it's it's a long way to go. And then you kind of get that little segment from fifth to ninth, which they're all kind of interchanging. Uh, he beat uh, my fellow Dunlop boy, Miamar Chekmanovic in the final in three sets. Uh, good win for Fritz, who actually has had kind of a rough opening of the year. He lost to my getting the bump pick, Alexi Popper, which I'll keep saying until, until time goes over because that still feels good at this point. Uh, he lost... Uh, he lost to Wu right in in Dallas, um, which was kind of an odd loss. And he kind of needs something to get him going. And in the field at at Delray, maybe wasn't the strongest. I would say he was the decent field, but for a guy of Fritz's capability, he should win that tournament, and he did. And uh, especially to come back and win it in three is is a good win over a quality player. Yeah, that tournament's traditionally good for Americans. And if uh, Tiafos won it, Queries won it, and Saka's won it. Um, suck but our boy sock had a tough outing uh this past week in delray he played matia petsitich really great story um he's 33 years old i know that the tour got shut down uh and so he, he wasn't on tour for during the time of covid but even before that he had an injury um and he sort of was just kind of battling on tour and had to move on um but kept his protected ranking which was right around like 700 730 Went down to pick up rackets at the tournament uh, to go, you know, because he didn't think he was going to get in off the sign-in. Ends up going down to pick up his three rackets, and the supervisor's like, hey, we think we're going to have a guy who's going to pull out, so might as well stick around. Stuck around, ends up playing Jack Sock uh, and beats Jack Sock in a night match in Delray. Um, It's just just cool because it's like, you know, dreams do come true, and sometimes – it takes a little bit longer for those dreams to be realized. Um, but it was a, it was one of the cool stories in Delray this week. Yeah, well, he beat – that was a main draw match. He had to qualify. He beat Sandgren and Kozlov in the qualifying to then play Jack Sock. This wasn't just a one-off thing. Yeah. This guy signed in, got into qualifying, and then had to win two qualifying just to get in the main and then beat Jack Sock in the main. Yeah. A little kind of Marcus Willis, if I if I remember that name correctly, like, from Wimbledon. Yeah. Little little kind of Marcus Willis. I know it wasn't as big as the stage. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, Marcus Willis uh, forever 
my boy, just because it's always great to see a fat guy playing tennis that well. And Marcus Willis is like famous for like drinking Dr. Pepper on the sideline, eating Snickers bars and just love, just, just absolutely love to see that, like, you know, just slugging his way around. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you were talking about Cole, him like uh, dropping off his rackets and that kind of stuff. Anybody who's a racket nerd like I am, he's playing with like a 2008 like Babolat Pure Drive. Like it, it was a special like paint. Like this guy is not playing with anything new. He's 33 years old. He thought he was done. He's a real estate guy, I believe. Right, Fred? Um, yeah. it's, li- it's literally like Wolf of Wall Street when he talks. That's what he sounds like. Yeah, I work for Wexford Capital when I play tennis on the side. It was so funny. <laughs> and he was He was better than Jack Sock. That yep. entire match, the ultimate weapon, Jack Sock. If I hear that one more time, I'm going to bash my head into a wall. Um, but he was better than Jack Sock that entire match. And I think, I believe, did he play Mackey next? Mackenzie McDonald in his, was that his next round of that? And I uh, think he, he played, lost. He, he played Giron. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And he was American and he played him tough. It wasn't like a walkover. Yeah. Um, the parody in tennis for how much talent there is from the guys that are that we never heard of, like him, compared to guys that we have heard of. It's so much closer than everybody thinks. It's so close. And it's fun to watch a, a story like that. And Delray could always use that little bit of a bump, like, you know, smaller 250s and that kind of stuff could always use that little bit of a draw. Yeah. Right. Going going down to Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires. Um, Great Alcaraz, draw. Al, yeah, it was. Alcaraz wins the final. He beats Cam Nori. Cam Nori was the defending champion of Delray. He chose to cho- chose to play Buenos Aires this year. Uh, made the final, but Alcaraz was back, and he was back with a vengeance and uh, got the dub. And he got the trophy handed to him by Juan Monaco and Gabriel Sabatini, which was extra dubs. Pico? Pico Monaco. And I, I, I actually give a little, cro- a little bit of props to Cam Nori for stepping outside of his comfort zone. Cam Nori is not a guy who should be good on clay. No. He hits the shoveliest backhand that I think his back backhand almost has backspin on it. It's so flat, and he's trying to add some stuff to his forehand. And he played really well and pushed Alcaraz pretty tough in that match. I think that was another one that went three as well. My memory serves me right watching it. Um, Alcaraz looked fit. He looked good. It was a good win for him because it's over a guy who's in the top 10. And that draw was very, very good at uh, at Buenos Aires, which was kind of awesome to see. That was the best. I thought that was a better draw maybe than you could say than Rotterdam of 500. I, I don't know if I could say that, Keith. I'm looking at, I, who, Cam, I'm looking at who Cam Nori beat. He beat Diaz, Acosta, Echeverri, and Varias in the semi. And then Alcaraz beat him in the final three and five. I think there were some upsets. I think that's why. I think there were some yeah. upsets in that in that in that tournament. Um, like you know, I thought I thought the draw there was incredibly, incredibly strong. You had um, I, used to, I used to look at draws and see Fonini's name in there and think it was a good draw. And now I see <laughs> him and it's just like it's not a good draw anymore. He did win the doubles though. Did you see that? Fonini won the doubles with the uh, Bellelli. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I'm looking that's at the pretty draw cool. now. I'm, I'm... I'm not too impressed. Oh, really? You don't think Lazo Gier, Dusan Lajovic, uh, you got the three name Spaniards, and I think it's uh, that's Spaniards. Yeah, but like that's, that's that's a two fifty. Like, uh, and you don't get number you don't get a you don't get a number three in the world and number and a number five and number six in the world at the two fifty. Yeah, I mean, there's the those are two guys, and then like Molchan was seated, like Ramos Vignolas was seated. Ramos Villalos is good on clay, baby. He's a three-name Spaniard, just good enough to, to be on tour, but not good enough to win anything big. Yeah. Oh, for, for, 
for our for for your viewers at home that ever can ever confused about the Spaniards and how to determine if they're really good, I always say that they have three names. They're good. They're not great. If they have two names, they're great. That's kind of the that's kind of the way to go through it. All right. Well, let's wrap it up with an absolutely star-studded draw in Rotterdam. <laughs> <laughs> Medvedev wins. Uh, he takes down Sinner. Um, I think we probably could have predicted this final. Um, but some takeaways from the week. Dimitrov hit probably two of the greatest shots I've ever seen in my life. Once against Dimonor and then another one against Sinner. Uh, just ridiculous, like slice catching back line, and then against against Sinner, and then against Demon. Match point, like on the dead run, flick winner. Demon's like shocked that the ball actually clipped the line. It was just sick. Good to see him play well all the way up until when he got chopped. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just a good, just a good tournament. That's always a good one because it's always a great feel. I'm gonna go back on my. On my Buenos Aires being a stronger draw. No, the Rotterdam was a stronger draw. <laughs> it was yeah. a much stronger. It was a stronger draw. Yeah, Sinner Sinner beat Sitsipas in the quarters. Yeah, yeah. I was on paper that's Sinner's best win in his career, ranking wise. How shocking! It feels like Sinner's better than Sitsipas a little bit. I, it I just, agree. It just feels that way. Just Sitsipas knows how to win, but yeah. But though, dude, that quarter that quarter was those two. Then Felix was in the quarter. Uh, Medvedev was another quarter. Uh, who else was? Pull up that draw because that. Well, that draw, I, I looked it up. That draw. Uh, yeah, the, that draw was, was significantly uh, better. Brower and Greek Spore. Yeah, it was. So here's the court. So Sinner Sitsipas was around a sixteen. Warinka, Warinka, yeah. Gasquet, Rune, nobody. Rune, Brower, Greek Spore, Zverev, Medvedev, Van de Zanschloop, Felix, Barrer. Uh, Herkach, Dimitrov, Cressy, Dimonor. Weird, Dimitrov makes like those weird runs every once in a while. Yeah. Like, he just kind of like finds his game and then loses in the first round the rest of the year. Yeah, also well, kind of makes me realize how kind of far off it Stan is. Like, we I felt like through Davis Cup and then early rounds of Rotterdam and last week, even that he was sort of getting his form back, and then he just you just go up against Sinner and it's not even close. He's not. He, he just can't do it anymore. He's just not as big as a player. Like he, he, before, he used to just kind of use the chip to set up his big strokes on both sides, and he and he doesn't move well enough to use the chip. He's got to go for more earlier, and it's just if he's not on, he's gonna lose the, the players that are really good. It's fun to watch him still play because that backhand's poetry, but it's he's not the same guy. He's what 37, 38 years old. Yeah. Last thing I'll say on Rotterdam, without looking at the draw, which you guys are probably looking at the draw, I'll, I'll give you five guesses. Who who was the two seed? Oh, uh, it, it wouldn't. No, Steph would have been the one, right? Yep. Medvedev would have been. No, Medvedev. A lot of points dropped off, right? It, I'm looking at the draw. Don't look at the draw. Jeez. Let's take all the fun out of this, Cole. Why well, I, I would have got it wrong. Yeah, I, yeah. There's no way I would have got this right. How'd you look at it, man? You ruined it. It was already is, up. Is it Zverev as a protected protected ranking? No. Uh, who is it? Rublev. Rublev was a two. I forgot he was in the. He played the that tournament, tournament, but he lost in the first round to Demon. <laughs> I thought he was, he I said, forgot he was in the fucking tournament. Rublev. <laughs> like, dude, that draw was stacked. That was no. I was that listen. Draw. I've never been more wrong in my life than in this moment, and I feel bad about it. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, oh, yeah. 
Wait, that's, sorry. That's the actual last thing I want to touch on no, about no. Rotterdam, just real quick. What's with the players walking out holding little kids' hands? They do that in every tournament. It's like a soccer thing, right? Yeah, yeah it's like a mascot at the US thing. Open. At the U.S. Open, they're not doing that. These U.S. Tournaments. I think they do it in every European tournament. I think it's like very in, common. In the U.S., there. maybe you'll have a kid like, "Oh, little little Keith is going to do the coin flip from Westchester, PA." Like, oh my God. yeah, that's that's what happens. But you don't have these kids are like, it's got to be a soccer thing, right? I don't know. I think it's a European thing because I think they do it in Australia. I think they do it everywhere. I know Australia's not in Europe. Before people come at me in the comments, they do it. Um, they do it. I think they. I think they do it a lot of places, okay. Fred. I think it's more common than you think. I think they're they're used as mascots. I think it's a cool moment for those kids to come out. But it's- I think I think it's awesome. I'm just like I really didn't notice it much until this past weekend, and there was a video of Sinner and this kid, and the kid like stole the show. I'm like, okay, that's the first time I'm kind of noticing this. There, there are some great clips, and I, I have to find it for um for soccer where it was like I think it was a kid with Wayne Rooney. Like back when he was like in Manchester United and like he didn't know who he was going to get. Like he knew he was in the tunnel. He didn't know who he was going to get is like his player to hold hands. And he like looks up and he's got like the the biggest smile on his face. And he like he like shudders into himself. He's like, oh, my God, I got Rain Rooney. And it's like that's what makes that, I think that's kind of cool. I mean, Fred's uh, awesome. anti-children. Anti he doesn't want the kids to have a good school. <laughs> I just said I loved it. I said I just I really didn't stick out to me until Rotterdam for whatever reason. I just pictured the kids either as ball kids or like coin flippers, as as, as opposed to yeah. Well, lost lost in all of uh, Fred apparently being anti-children, even though he is pro-children. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and and uh, and the fact that I've never been more wrong about a draw in the entirety of my life—that's actually maybe one of the strongest 500 draws I've ever seen. Um, is the fact that that Medvedev did win, and it felt like a little bit of a coming out party for him again. Cole and I kind of talked about how we thought this would could be a good tournament for him to come back out, and uh, he beat Center in three as well. A lot of good finals uh, for these all these events. All three of them were very good finals. And that's a good win for Medvedev uh, because it's a stacked field. He won pretty easily most of the time and then played a, a played an informed center very well and beat him in three. And he kind of needs that because there was some parts, parts of his game that were getting exposed, it felt like. So to get back on the winning winning track is a good sign. Yeah, yeah I, quickly. It looks like – Get in the bump quickly. Get in the bump quickly. All right, Cole, what, what were you going to say? I was going to say it looks like he's going to play – Getting bumped. We'll cut that and then we'll go to getting bumped. No, no, what were you gonna say? I was gonna I'm say it looks, like put it, he, it looks like he's gonna play Qatar this week, and then it looks like oh. he's gonna he's gonna play again. I mean, Indian Wells is in two weeks. That's a good sign for his. And then he might health. play the Arizona Tennis Classic. You just never know. He'll be there. <laughs> so looks like he's up and ready for it. Good. Well, let's quickly run around getting the bump. Yuri Lahechka, nothing on my end. A third week in a row, not playing. I guess just taking that rest after a quarterfinal run at the Australian Open. Are you getting? Are you? Are you nervous? No, because he already reached the goal that I set out for getting the bump. So everything from here is gravy. But like is. he has to finish the year in that, right? I think he'll get there. I don't think it'll be a problem. The guy's played too well and has played too well for a year. Has, not. I think he has four tournaments with zero points that count towards his ranking. Yeah. I'm just saying, just asking. Yeah, he makes he makes a second round. He makes a second round out of 500, and I think he's back inside the top 40. Oh, yeah, he's top 30. He's top 30. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. I got 
Kazal, he lost in the quarterfinals of uh, Challenger in Chennai, Chennai, India. Don't make the joke, Keith. And then, and then it's in, uh, he's in uh, Beng- Bengaluru in India as well this week. So his first round is tomorrow against another Frenchman. So I'm looking for a French on French crime. Yeah. Um, Alexi Popperin lost in the quarterfinals in Manama, which is in Bahrain, which I learned is in the Middle East, uh, which I now can point out on the map. It feels good to not be uncultured. I uh, lost to Tanasi Kokonakis in the quarterfinals there. He Kokonakis has his number because they played in a really good match in Adelaide where Kokonakis won in like a third set breaker, I think, and then beat him here. So uh, not a bad result for, for Popperin, who's now up to like 83 in the world which again is like 40 spots higher than where he started the year. So I'm feeling pretty good about where he's going with this game. Where's, where's Lahachka in ranking? Mm, 40. He might've dropped from 38 to 46, maybe somewhere, somewhere in that range. Let's see. All right, so let's say top, top fit 45 for you, Keith, you're at 83 ish. And then I got Arthur Kazow at 218. Yuri Lehechka is 15 in the world now. He's career high 37 early this year. Yep, exactly. He's dropped 15 spots since not playing for three weeks. He's in Doha this week too, Fred. He's, he's playing in Doha. But Popper's not playing anywhere this week. I, so. Yep. We'll see. Well, all it seems like all of us watched a lot of tennis in the last week. But a lot of the tennis I was watching was obviously my college teams, but also – the ITA National Indoors was going on in Chicago this past weekend, 16-team college tournament, kind of the, the best of the best, sort of a beginning-of-the-season team tournament in college tennis. So pretty pretty exciting format. And we know we have Pat Harper on to talk a little bit about his team going, getting ready for that last week. But, yeah, I mean, I, I watched a ton of that, and I think the biggest thing to me that stood out other than some good tennis was – just some of the line calling. And I think it's even what stands out during the matches that I'm coaching. Uh, you just, I don't know. I, I know I text with you guys a lot to almost vent about this frustration, but just when, when is something going to change? It's just, it's almost ruins our sport. And, and you're watching on such a big stage like that at the IT nationals. It's like, how are we letting these guys call their own lines to determine such a big, I don't know, such a big trophy. It's the, as I like to call it, the art of the hook. Uh, for those who don't follow tennis religiously, hooking someone is when you in, deliberately call a ball in out. Uh, it's 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 done with class and precision from nobody. It's just that everybody has the ability to do it, and it's tennis is one of the few sports where you can get away with it frequently. And I think uh, tennis Twitter was ablaze with it, as Fred kind of said, of just like some blatant, blatant bad calls, and it puts a black eye on the sport and it's kind of a bit of a bummer. So how do we fix this as Fred just asked? And I think it's cultural. I think that's where we got to start. It's just the culture of tennis just allows it. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it at the tour level, every tournament has that Hawkeye system more or less. If you don't, I mean, if it's a clay court tournament, you kind of rely, rely on the mark and the umpire's discretion, which is a whole nother thing. Um, but it's not so much the battle at the tour level, more so the college level and, and uh, the junior and uh, amateur level. And it's like, it's hard because it, it, these points mean so much. My experience really is just watching my friends play 
college tennis, right? And and it's hard to see, you know, them care so much. And like if the chair isn't watching or not seeing it, or you know, someone's absolutely hooking, that weighs because it means a lot to them. It means a lot to the team. And it's like you're getting robbed for not doing anything wrong. It's the worst feeling I can only imagine, Freddie. I'm sure you've been on the wrong end of that, whether you're watching a teammate at Virginia Tech or you experiencing it firsthand. So yeah, I would agree with you, Keith. It is a cultural, it's a cultural thing for sure. Yeah, I think no matter how many I don't know. Like when you play as many matches as we've played, you're always going to experience it. I don't think anybody's not been on the other end of that. I mean, even you, Cole, like you have stories from high school tennis when guys are doing that. It's it goes from sort of the the top level of amateur tennis all the way down. And we sort of joke sometimes, but you we don't see it at the pro level because, like you said, there's electronic line calling now at seven or eight out of every 10 tournaments. And other than that, yeah, they have the challenge system with lines, people on every single line. So you don't have to worry about it at the pro level, but we joked. It's like, you see Ostapenko at the Australian open, the complaining that the electronic system's wrong and that ball had to be uh, six inches out. It's like, no, it's actually, it was three inches in. Um, and so it's just funny to see that, but at the pro level, you don't really worry about it as much. It's it's everything that trickles down. And I don't know, D1 college tennis is about as high level tennis as you can get uh, before really being on the tour. And it's a shame that it, it sometimes has to influence the way the matches play out. It's just rewarded. That's the problem with tennis. Mm-hmm. It's rewarded when you cheat. Um I, 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 I think it's fun here that we get to have this conversation with three people and kind of three distinct te- points of tennis in life. Like we said, Fred has played the highest form of amateur tennis that you can, you can play in collegiate tennis. Um, I, I come from a coaching background and still play religiously USTA and still can play competitively and that kind of stuff. And, and Cole uh, having played as a junior really is kind of fun to kind of have that and, and playing now again, picking it up, but it's so cultural that it gets rewarded. Uh, I think it needs. I think it. I think it has to start earlier. I think people think that that it's a college problem. I think when we see like uh, at US, the nationals and that kind of stuff, we think it's a college problem. But I think it's a. It, I think it's a way earlier problem than that. I think it starts with coaches. I think it starts with parents. I think it starts with the kids themselves. They that they start on this uh, because. I used to say this all the time when I used to run junior events like uh, like L7, L6 tournaments. There was never a kid that I thought was dishonest because he wanted to win. He was dishonest because his parents put so much pressure on him and he felt that he had to win in order to help, like, you know, to, to make his dad or his mom proud. And it starts right there and it starts with his coach. Um, it, it starts with his coach when it comes to that kind of stuff. I only ever had one kid, and this is a funny story, that ever cheated um, – that that his dad didn't want him to cheat, if that makes sense. Um, the dad actually called me down to go on court. There's like an like a ten year old, like a twelve year old at a, in an orange ball tournament, and just goes, "My son's cheating." And I walked down on court and stood on court for like ten seconds. And the kids go, "What's what's what's up, Mister Director?" And I'm just like, "I'm just here to observe and everything like that." And like the third ball, this this kid who was accused of cheating hooks the kid on a ball that's like four inches inside the line, and I just like broke down laughing. And he was like, well, what's so funny? I'm like, I got to give you credit. You, you stuck to your guns, man. Like, <laughs> like you stuck to your guns. I'm like, you do that again. You're done. You're out of this tournament. I don't care. Like, that's just the way we're going to do this. But it's most of the time, it's the parents and the coaches that put such an emphasis on winning at all levels that it becomes so ingrained with how you have to play. You have to win. So you have to cheat. What do you, yeah. do you think, do you think honesty is, is taught enough? 
I mean, Fred, as a coach, you know, coaching your team right now, like, are you teaching these guys to like, you know, make the right call, even if it is sacrificing points for the team's good? Oh yeah. And we talk about that all the time. It's like, we're, if we're going to win, we want to do it the right way. But I think like Keith said, it starts from the beginning. Like my, my dad didn't put up with any of that. Any coach that I had around didn't put up with any of that. And, but you see all these other people at the tournaments and you're like, well, how come that kid gets to do it? And I can't. It's like, well, cause it's not right. But I think like Keith said, from an early age, I think you don't really, you're not going out with the mal intent of just trying to take a match from somebody. I think it becomes a bad habit that gets built. And then by the time you get to your teenage years, then you know what you're doing and you either stop or you don't. Like there was a kid we grew up with who from probably age nine to 13 was one of the biggest cheaters in all these tournaments. And then he got to age 13 or 14 and kind of realized nobody's going to like me if I keep doing this. And he just stopped and like his results were not the same because a lot of his results were coming because he was cheating. But like, I'm still friends with the guy today where if he kept doing what he was doing to we're 18, it's like, no one's going to talk to you at any of these tournaments. And I think some kids don't care because the pressure of winning and, and all that is just greater than some of the other societal things. There's, there's no dissuasion, Cole. Like that's the problem. And you see it like even at the amateur level, like I play, I've been open about this. I play four O men's and, and, and mixed doubles and that kind of stuff is that the problem is that happens a lot of times is that you get a guy on your team that you know is a cheat, but wins and the captain refuses to drop him. The captain on that team will refuse to not let that guy play because of the fact that guess what? The ultimate goal for your captain is to get your team to districts, get in the sectionals and hopefully get the nationals and be the best team at your level throughout the entire year. And if, Joe, if if Joe Q is winning eight out of ten matches and he's hooking the hell out of people the entire time, if we drop him from our team, then the team that finished second is going to pick him up right away. And I think where it's where we say it starts at like a grassroots level. It needs to start with USBTA coaches. It needs to start with captains on on teams where they need to start punishing in a way their own players or something like that, or just like it needs to be consensus. Like, hey, we can't play this guy because of the fact that that he cheats or we can't play this girl. I, I literally had somebody in a match. I'll never forget this call a ball out because it sounded long. I, that was, that was the, that was the call I got. It sounded out. I hit like a big serve and they went, I don't, it's out. And I went, are you sure? And they went, it sounded long. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, these are the type of people that you play in matches. Like you get people like this. Like you get, a, I had a guy one time after a match who I once said, I needed, I needed, I asked, I, I, I went up and barely shook his hand. I said, I've never played anybody like you. And he just goes, well, if I played you heads up, I would have lost quicker. Like, these are the type of people you get in these matches. And if it's not punished, it, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And as you grow in the level, it doesn't stop. And it puts a big black eye on the sport. Yeah. And in college tennis, there's a point penalty rule for if you get overruled, but okay. So you get two overrules and then on your third one, it's a point penalty. On your fourth one, it's a game penalty. Fifth one set, and usually that's when the match would end. But still, it's it, there's no carryover. So every match you're playing, you essentially get two free ones. It's like what, like you said, like what incentive is there to be really honest if you know that the other guy is going to do this? And it's it's crazy. It just, yeah, I think culturally is is the biggest thing. It needs to be done like golf a little bit. What I mean by that is that like. Anybody who's ever played golf before knows that if you have something Cole laughing because I always make golf comparisons to tennis, um, is that if you have guys at your club or your friend group that that cheat, everybody stops playing with that individual. 
nobody wants to play. Like if I was a cheater, nobody would want to play with me, no matter how good or, or funny I am. They're just like, I'm getting tired of this guy. And I think that needs to happen a little bit with, with tennis when it comes to that. If you get a guy on your team or a girl on your team that cheats, then just avoid, just be like, no, we're not setting up a fun doubles thing. No, we're not funding. We're not setting up a singles hitting session. I don't want to play you. I don't get better. Like, you know, you just are kind of an annoying human because tennis is so much fun when there's no cheating. It's so much fun when you get to play a ball. It's like an inch out or something like that because you don't want to call it because you're having a good time hitting, even if it's a match. I find it more egregious when they cheat in uh, amateur matches because like, what are you cheating for? You're just cheating for yourself. How do you feel good going back to your team? Just going like, yeah, I won that match seven, six, seven, six, but I had to hook the guy three times in the breaker to do it. How do you feel good? Like, you, how do you feel like a winner? How do you sit there and have a beer and feel like you just did something right? Yeah, I you know, I I think about just going back to like the indoors because this the indoors is national indoors is sort of what spurred this whole conversation. Um, when I see a tweet of one of the guys that was like in the point that I think there was like a cedar volley and it was eight inches wide, and something I mean they got called out or something and then they got overruled, and then the guy got on Twitter and was saying you know, bad calls happen all the time. It evens out over the long, over the course of a match. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I definitely don't agree with it fully. Um, I think that the stakes are so I high. disagree with it. I disagree with it. They never get evened out. One, it, unless, it, yeah, like I, I, like, I get it. I get what he's saying. Like, if it's – I get what he's saying. But at that at that uh, level of tournament and match and what it meant for them and, and everything, like, it, momentum can swing like that. And And for me, it's just like you can't be missing these easy calls. Or, you know, saying that it's in, it's not, and it's out when it's, you know, a huge tournament. Fred, you know, from, from culture, like what you were probably taught as a junior and what you were taught, like, at least what I was taught to teach people is what do you do? What do you tell your kids to do a lot of times or what you were taught to do when somebody hooks you six times? What's the first thing you're told to do? Yeah. I mean, I only had to do it once, but yeah, my, my dad said if somebody ever, just got you so bad so many times just they hit a serve and it goes in the middle of the box and you just catch it and you say nope just wide and they'll like they'll be so thrown off okay maybe they'll go hit a second serve they hit the second serve middle of the box catch it nah just long toss it right back to them they'll go get the ref and then you have a ref on your court or i don't know maybe they'll never do it again but it just i've only had to do that once but that's what a lot of people say and i just i don't know if that's the the solution like to just egregiously cheat somebody back it's it's not the solution but it's the only way to like kind of even the playing field and that's where it comes down to culturally being an issue and 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 if you like at usta that's like the only way to that's the only way to do it and some people just can't do that like i can't do i've hooked i've hooked somebody once in my life intentionally because he hooked it was that person that told me that if i played you heads up i would have lost easier i did it once and like it's just that's not a solution it needs to be done before then and like, you know, I think there's solutions for the college level. And I'm curious what you think here, Fred. And I uh, call, I'm curious what your, is it, is it like, you know, there's so many different ways to like spend money in doing this, but you could do like put GoPros on each court and coaches look through a match. And if they see something like, you know, after the match, they can support, they can report it to the ITA and the ITA can start issuing out punishments. That's the only way you're going to stop it at that level. I, I kind of think. Yeah, I think, I mean, I sent you guys a link to something the other day, but there's like a new system that you can put on your net post that's got eight cameras in it and it sees the whole court and the AI 
technology can basically call the lines for you. And it's 98.7% accurate, which I think is uh, unbelievable. And it's, I don't know, maybe two grand a system or 2,500 a system. And so for a lot of those top 100 teams in the country, they all can easily afford to put that at their, all, at their courts. And I don't know, the amount of money that as college coaches that we're paying referees to come that, like and, and, and referee our matches, it's, I mean, you're, you're spending 15, at the big schools, you're spending 15 to 20 grand a year just on officials. And they're not really doing a whole lot. So if you can take that money and invest it into a system that can actually be reliable and, and call lines like it's doing in a lot of these top level pro events in a cost-effective manner, maybe that's the next step. So who's, who's paying for that system? The, sco- the schools would. Yeah, the, the schools probably would. But if the ITA really wanted to get involved, or the USTA really wanted to get involved and step in, you find a way to subsidize it so that everybody has it. So that maybe a school like ours who doesn't have a massive budget like Texas, we can get it for our four courts, indoors and outdoors. And if, if it gets approved by the ITA or the NCAA or whoever would have to approve it, then everyone would have it and everyone would use it. And that's just what that's what you go off of based off of calls. People would still call their own lines, but this thing, this machine, it either lights up red or it lights up green. And so if you go and I hit a serve and you call it just wide and you just look over the machine and it's bright green, then it's just it's an overrule. And you just leave it at that. There's no arguing. There's it just it is what it is. We go by that. And we trust that the 98% accuracy or whatever it is, is, is going to be right. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think everybody that's, you know, in the power five or top 100, like you said, should have, should find a way to get something on their, on their courts, whether it's a camera or a line calling system, but it's uh matches mean too much matches mean too much. And a lot of these kids all want to try and play professionally and, you know, confidence is a big deal and they're, Standings with their team at the end of the year for tournaments and championships is a big deal, too. So for moving on and growing in their careers. So um, just for fairness, I think that these colleges got to do it. Yeah, and I, I really like Keith's idea because, like I touched on earlier, I think the penalty system in place right now is even I don't know what's less than a slap on the wrist, but that's what it is, where kind of like almost what Keith said, if you're. I mean, if you're getting overruled four or five, if you're getting overruled more than really once or twice in a match, you've got to be something that carries over to another match. You're suspended for the next match or well, whatever it is, a repeat offender needs to be punished in some way. You can't just go through every match and get overruled three times a match every match for 25 matches. Yellow card. It's yellow card and red card. That's yeah, the way you do it. You get a certain amount of yellow cards, you're a dirty player sometimes. <laughs> you need some system because, again, we've seen we've seen it where people miss calls. Guys are hitting 125 serves. Maybe maybe you miss a call. Like, I, trust me, it's happened. I'm sure it's happened to me. Like, I, I've never been overruled, but I, I guarantee I probably missed a call. It's just the way, the speed of the game and everything. But if, and if you're missing more than one or two calls in a match, like, you're not just missing them anymore. And that has to be taken into account. I mean, I think the easy way to do that, to build off that, Fred, is if you're going to have that system, you just pay an official to walk around and just, if there's an overrule, he puts a little check on his notebook, uh, Mesmer hook. And if he, and then he just reports it to the, he reports it to the head of the tennis and then that's it. Yeah. They already do that, except it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't, there's no rollover. It just, they just count it. And then they just count it to see if in that match, are you at a point penalty or a game penalty or a set penalty yet? 
It's like uh, it's like technicals in the NBA. If you get yep. a technical, you get suspended for like two games. If you get a technical in like uh, a seven game series, you get in or like two or three in a series, you get suspended for the next game. Like it's we need to have some sort of system. Yeah, I think that and that's for the college level. And obviously this technology and stuff as you trickle down to the junior tournaments and the USTA and just your recreational level, it gets more challenging to implement some of the technology at those, at those levels. And again, like I said earlier, that's where at some point you got to start somewhere and that's when the USTA maybe can start subsidizing the facilities that host their events and, and give them some of these machines and, and start from there. But I know there's different parks people play at where you can't always have that access, but I, I think, something is better than nothing. Yeah, it's just tough when it comes to that and that's why I think at the at the top level the 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 as they say modern problems require modern solutions. Use some technology. But when it comes to the grassroots level of tennis if you want to get rid of that black eye, you have to have a good culture. So if you you have to you have to start off. It every time something like this comes up in tennis the game looks bad and the game is so much fun for all of us outside of that. But there's nothing worse than going on a court and knowing, okay, I can't hit a ball four inches inside. I can't hit a ball within four inches of a line because I know the guy I'm playing against. And it just if if captains on USDA teams, if coaches and that kind of stuff don't start punishing their players for winning and doing that, then it never really is going to get fixed at the it, it, at the amateur level. It never will. Yeah, no. And like you said, if you feel, if you feel like you can't actually play your game because of what the other person's doing on the other side of the net, it just it ruins it for everybody. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for tuning in to this portion of the episode. And we're going to transition into the interview today. We've brought on David Smith, David Starbucks Smith, the legend, good friend of mine, moved to D.C. a couple of years ago, has helped me coach at Georgetown and prominent physical therapist out in the California area, worked with the 49ers, um, big, big tennis guy, played tennis at Cal. I'll let him introduce himself a little bit more, but I hope you guys enjoy. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us. Just wanted to kind of get you on. I think what we're trying to do with this podcast a little bit is just get some different perspective from people within the tennis world. And I think when I think about that, you're one of the first people that jumps to mind just because of a lot of the different things you've done in tennis and and just even some of the classic things you've done in tennis we've talked about your time in an academy and then playing at cal and then playing on tour and helping other athletes but then also helping athletes in other sports um and so i guess i'll kind of leave it to you to just give a little brief introduction and and kind of what brought you to where you are today uh well, yeah, I mean, you know, like, like you, tennis has been a part of life forever. Yeah, five, six years old, started playing. And then um, funny thing, when I, when I started playing outside Denver, Colorado, this little podunk town called Parker, um, there was a, a club there called the Pinery. We lived in condos that were kind of just down the street. And my parents put me in these clinics and uh, there were about 10 kids in there. And it turns out three of us ended up playing division one college tennis. <laughs> yeah. Which was crazy. And, and I think about that and I, a lot because I think, what are the, what are the odds of this little nowhere Colorado place and three kids, one kid played number one for Notre Dame. Another kid played uh, at Navy. And, uh, and I mean, it was just, it's just amazing. So 
how does that happen? I, I don't even, I can't even fathom, but it must've been just good coaching. And just, I remember it being a ton of fun to play. And I, you know, Freddie, you and I were talking about this when you're a kid and you're into sports, it's just kind of all you ever want to do. And so but that was it. But, I, um, you know, that led to playing junior tennis and, uh, and I was number one in the tens and twelves and fourteens in, in Colorado and in the Intermountain. And, um, and then uh, I grew up with Jeff Salzenstein, who was uh, we were doubles partners and, and close friends. And he played number one at Stanford and I ended up playing at Cal. So, you know, I think I think a lot of times with tennis is you grow up around people. You you get lucky in the sense that you grow up around other other kids who are kind of your level or better and always pushing you. And, you know, we've seen that in tennis. That's for, for sure. You know, you see the Agassi Sampras courier Chang era and, and others, you see this fed Nadal and Djokovic Murray or era. And you just see these guys push each other to another level. And I think at a microscopic level in the juniors, you get that a little bit when you're around, you're around other players, other kids who, you know, you kind of push each other and you, you cultivate each other's interests. So Anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of what got me started. That's what got me uh, playing. And then Cal and then uh, my junior year, I left to to go you know, try my hand out there. And um, I I loved every second of it. a lot of people don't love to travel and and, you know, go from place to place in these towns that there's no one ever watching. And, you know, you <laughs> nobody cares but you. But um, but you form some of your best friendships out there. And, and it's just it's a great time. I wouldn't change that time for anything. You know, I wasn't a great pro, that's for sure, but I uh, I definitely enjoyed it. And uh, and I look back on that time as kind of just growth overall. You know, it, it, at the end of the day, it, it fulfilled the dream, but it also pushed me to um, to to better tennis. I, I my tennis game grew tremendously out there, and um, and then it also pushed me to to find you know the next career, the next thing. You know, I. My last match, I remember it was, I always knew I was going to do something outside of tennis when I was done, but, but you don't know when that's going to be until you absolutely know. And, you know, for me, I, I'll never forget that day. I was playing in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was, I don't know, it was like the third round or something. I was playing well, won the first set, sat down on the changeover. And I, I remember distinctly it just hit me. It's like, it was it just all of a sudden this wave came over me of, I don't care if I win or lose this match. And the next thought was, and I, I'm actually done. <laughs> and wow. I was, I, that was the last match I played. I flew, flew back to San Diego where I was staying and, um, and started the rest of my life. I had to finish school. So I went back to Berkeley, but for another year, but uh, once I was done with that, I went back to San Diego and started a career in exercise therapy. How, how old were you when you decided to hang it up on the tour? I was about 26. Yeah. And I was having fun, but I wasn't doing great. And I was, uh, I just, like I said, when you know that there's always something more than tennis out there, um, I think you're just, you hit that point where you're just ready for that next thing. And I had kind of gotten it all out of my system and did what I needed to do and what I always wanted to do. And then it was time to go. And, you know, I didn't really stay in tennis. I worked with a lot of tennis players just in on their bodies and things like that, but I didn't really stay in tennis until uh years later i got back into it you know played some of the national 35s and national 40s and stuff like that and just kind of found the passion for it again in terms of just enjoying it without the pressure and that's a good place to be and i still feel like i'm there now 
Nice. If talking about the tour, what's if you could give me top three places that the tour took you? Oh, I love it. Um, well, I got invited uh, to play this thing called the Huggy Bear, which um, which was a it was a, an invitation only event. It was a pro am event, and uh, they always had the top pros, the top doubles players there playing. And it was just incredible because they played at these private houses and it was for a truckload of money. And uh, I mean, a truckload. And so um, we went over and played. I teamed up with the friend of mine who ended up coaching me. His name was Jim Pugh. Jim was number one in the world, played Davis Cup with Rick Leach and solid player, played UCLA and then turned pro and was, I think, top 50 in the world in singles even. And anyway, he was at the end of his career when I, when we teamed up and, uh, and we, we got to the finals and um, went three. And then we, the way the tournament works is you have, they're called bisques. You probably know what they are, where you, they give, um, they, they weigh the matchup and then they give the underdogs points to use whenever they want. And this is a great, we played against San and Stolly, who was number one in the world at the time in doubles and his dad, Fred, and this was the, the, so there were two parts to the draw. There was the pro-am and the, and the pro-ex-pro and they put Jim and I in the pro-ex-pro and they had um, Sandin and his dad in the, in the pro-am because even though Fred was a former pro, he was, you know, at the time he was probably in his mid sixties, um, but could still play ball. And, uh, and so we ended up losing to those guys in three sets and they, they, uh, Sandin was just all over the court and it was fantastic. Anyway, that was a long answer to your question, but that was a, a great memory because um, it was the most money I'd ever won out there. <laughs> and it was a ton of fun along the way. And like I said, these these great places. So definitely that was in the South Hamden. That was in uh, in New York and in the, in the Hamdens. Um, uh, I loved going to Austin, Texas. Actually, Cole, you and I are talking about that. Uh, Austin was just such a great place because it's so fun. And I fell in love probably three different times in three days, um, going there, going out in town and, yeah. um, it was a lot of fun. And then, uh, let's see, uh, Portugal, I loved, uh, I went to Portugal for a month and played and toured around Portugal and, um in spain and uh that was memorable because it's just so beautiful and unique places um funny story about portugal uh my flight was canceled my before the first tournament and i ended up getting there the night before i played i got there at midnight my match was at 8 a.m went over there played the match and the sun the courts were arranged i think strangely they were or wrong you know how normally they keep you away from looking at right at the sun well these courts were one side you looked literally right at the sun coming up behind you or in front of you and so on one side neither guy could win a game on the side okay. of the sun because literally you can't i mean you had to close your eyes and hit and i lost that match seven six in the third <laughs> Because nobody could break the other guy or win on one side. And so it was, uh, that was memorable. And then um, the next tournament, I remember it rained so hard that starting from the third round, they just had to flip a coin to decide the winners. So, you know, these are the stories that you get out there playing in these places that are, you know, you're not, it's not glorious. <laughs> you're getting prize money and ranking points based on the coin flip. 
Um, yeah, well, so this was a satellite and so it was one stop on the satellite. So you don't get ranking points anyways, you get um, satellite points, which, so there are four tournaments to a satellite. There's, there's three tournaments and then you get the fourth one is called the masters. You build up points in the first three to qualify for the masters. And then you have to win a round of the masters to get a point, um, one, one ATP point to get one round. And so it's a grind. You know, the good news about that is it weeds out players who maybe shouldn't be out there. Um, but it also uh, it's, you know, you got to play a month to get some ATP points. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. But that's why, you know, the better players, you know, play one or two satellites. They win their points and they get the heck out of there and play bigger tournaments. Yeah. On the on the flip side of that, what's the worst place that the tour took you? Oh, well, you know, I hate to, I hate to name it because it's, uh, I, I <laughs> let me just say that, that back then it, it wasn't the most interesting place and that was Waco, Texas. And, uh, I, I, I'm sure it's great now, but, um, back in the day it was this, this, um, it was a rec center and the courts were a bunch of courts and, uh, I just remember just being stacked up next to, you know, there are three guys on this side, three guys on this side, you're playing right in the middle and balls are coming on your court. And you talk about no fanfare whatsoever. I don't think a, a fan would have dared step foot out there to, to watch anyone. I mean, it was hot. It was, um, uh, you know, it was miserable. Um, but actually now that I think about it, there was a worse place, uh, and again, no offense to those in uh, in good old Lafayette, Louisiana, but that was the hottest place I've ever played in my life. And I remember we got off the plane, we went over to the courts and we started warming up and we could only last 20 minutes out there before we were just dead. The next day I played my first round. It was a three and a half hour match that I won like seven, five in the third. And I remember being so depleted and so dead uh, going out there playing doubles, um, after that, and then playing another singles match the next day. I mean, that was just, it was a lot, but I've never been so hot. I've never played anywhere so hot in my life. And I'll never forget. It was at this college campus and right across from campus, there's a strip club. <laughs> you know, these are the things that you remember. It's like, okay, I'm playing a match and there's a strip club across the street. It's <laughs> I, I doubt it still exists to this day. <laughs> we'll have to fact check that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we stayed at a hotel that night. It was, it was uh first place we stopped at was $11 a night. Um, and, uh, and this is the thing about, you know, playing out there, you're traveling, you're trying to spend as little money as you possibly can. And, and so we're driving around, we find this motel, it's, it's $11 a night. We asked the manager, Hey, uh, can we see a room? You know, we kind of want to verify the, <laughs> the room a little bit. And so he says, yeah, sure. Come on in. So he takes us up to this room. I, I mean, he probably showed us the best room he had, but we walk in and, uh, and it's this green shag carpet and uh, we see the, the bed, there are two twin beds and both beds have these mattresses. One of them just is just sunk in. Like they hadn't changed the mattress in 30 years. Wow. I mean, it was a, it was a hammock. <laughs> and and then I walk in the bathroom and there are these bath towels and there's there's literally blood stained blood dried blood on one of the towels. <laughs> this is the place you sent and it and then it got better. We I got back in the went in the room and the guy says the manager puts his hand on the TV and he says uh, 
Yeah, so um, at midnight, the tone changes. And we're like, well, I don't, what? What do you mean the tone changes? And the guy, you know, he kind of gives that wink. Like, you know, at midnight, the tone on the TV, it changes to adult stuff. <laughs> okay, great. So needless to say, we did not stay at that place. We went to the much better place for $13 a night. <laughs> oh my god those stories are awesome Brad, this is what you have to look forward to when you give it a run this summer right i know i know that's what david's getting me ready for thailand <laughs> we go thailand all bounce across africa come on freddie yeah i'm telling you freddie it's uh you, you know the thing about it, you these stories you'll never forget them and especially the people that you're with and you travel with and you practice with i mean these guys become some of your best friends for life, uh, you know, and plus you fulfill a dream. So all, you know, all of that said with all the places and, you know, lack of fanfare, it's, it's the best thing ever. I loved it. Yeah. That's so awesome. Well, I guess transitioning a bit to like life after the tour. So you said, obviously you went back to Cal, finished school and then got into the exercise therapy. Walk us through kind of the first couple of years of your career and then, Kind of where where it took you out west before you came east yeah um when i was in college and also uh first couple of years on tour my lower back was killing me it would lock up and spasm on me often in fact i couldn't run a lap around a track without my lower back literally just locking down so um I, after tennis i knew i was i thought i was going to med school i thought it was going to be doc probably some kind of orthopedic field. And uh, as I went back to Cal, finished pre-med and then was on my way to med school and found this guy named Pete Egoscue. Pete was an exercise therapist uh, out of San Diego, started his own clinic. Um, his story is fascinating too. Shot in Vietnam, uh, wounded and heal, ended up trying to fix himself at the end of the day because he couldn't get any help and came up with this thing called the Agassi method. Anyways, I mentored with Pete. I found Pete um, at, when my, for my back in 1996. And uh, my sponsor on the tour sent me in, was a friend of his and said, you got to go see this guy. So I did. Went over there and uh, back got better and never forgot it. And so when it was time to kind of shift gears and shift careers before med school, I thought I'd go see if uh, if I could hang out with Pete for a little bit. So I did. I went over there and I interned in his clinic for three months for free. And uh, and one day, actually within a week there, I knew it's where I, what I wanted to do. It just kind of had everything. It had anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, and uh, and everything you you know I could have wanted. Um, and then there were athletes coming in all the time, people in tremendous pain, you know, limping in or crawling in, and sometimes and then walking out. And so that's kind of where my career started was just this fascinating journey into anatomy and physiology. And I um, kind of poured all my focus into, uh, into that for, you know, well, obviously the last 25 years, but, um, but at the time it's just, you know, when you get immersed in something, that's all you want to do. And that's, that was it for me. And I knew I was in the right place. And so I worked for Pete for about four years and then started my own clinic in, uh, in, 2004 uh in san francisco and uh and i did that i had a clinic in union square and kind of all around downtown a little bit but last one was was in union square um and 
you know, did that for uh, till 20, 2018, then sold the clinic, worked with the San Francisco 49ers for a couple of years. And then um, my wife got a, offered a fellowship. She's a PhD chemist. She got offered a fellowship in DC um, as kind of an, ended up being a science policy advisor on the House Committee of Energy and Commerce. And I told her when the fellowship came up, she said, it's one year in Washington, D.C. We had a we were living in San Francisco. We had our place there in San Francisco, a condo there. And she said, uh, she says, do you want to go? And I was still with the 49ers. And I said, well, I'll go for a year, knowing that I'd have to fly back, you know, every week for until the season was over. And so that's uh, that's what we did. We 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 thought we'd come back to San Francisco in a year. So found a place in, in Georgetown, rented a place. And then uh, every week during the season, I was, uh, I was flying back for a couple of days just to work with the players and the team. And, um, and then uh, when her fellowship ended, we moved back to San Francisco and I don't know about something about the East coast and DC captured us because after two months or not even two, yeah, about two months of being in San Francisco, we kind of looked at each other and said, you know what? I think I think we're ready for a change. I don't think we want to be here anymore, and uh, and so we packed up our stuff and we came back to D.C. Here we are. And then I met Freddie Mesmer, and, <laughs> you know. And then life life changed totally at that point. Jeez, that's for the better, for the worse. When you met Freddie, good God, for the much much better, much better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a byproduct of that meeting, so. Appreciate you introducing us, Freddie. <laughs> no, that's quite a journey. That's quite a journey. Um, was that hard? I, I'm guess I'm assuming you no longer are involved with uh, the 49ers in any way. I'm not. I'm not in any way, um, and that's okay. I, I had a great experience. I I can tell you that the uh, the guys were um, beyond wonderful, uh, bright thoughtful, uh, personable, tough as nails, um, and, uh, and hearts, uh, hearts of gold. I mean, they really, you know, I have the utmost respect for the, for the, the organization, um, and for the, for the guys I worked with, and, you know, it's like every Sunday, those guys get in a car crash. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, the first couple of days they, you know, they come in and, they're trying to recover and they, they don't really recover. I mean, generally they recovered by Wednesday. They were finally starting to feel a little better in general. And then, you know, and if that Thursday night game, they're right back at it. Um, you know, it was kind of crazy, but, you know, like I said, I was in awe at, uh, at the things that they were able to play through and work through. And, um, and I think they all just had great heads on their shoulders and, and knew, you know, most of them um, graduated college, had college degrees, and were planning on careers outside of football and after football. And, you know, just so I was really, really impressed with the quality of people that were there. And, um, you know, so great experience. But no, not working with them anymore. And yeah. and uh, would I work with another team again? Yeah, I would. I mean, part time, that would be, be a lot of fun. Yeah. But I've got the, you know, I've got Georgetown tennis. So what do I really need, oh. you know, pro football for? That's... What well, what does your clientele look like now in regards to tennis? Uh, in regards to tennis, um, uh, I work with, and I have been for several years, a bunch of different players from different teams and some different teams. So um, <clears throat> some of the, uh, some of the, a bunch of college players 
I work with now. Um, not currently working with any pros. I don't think, uh, well, yeah, not really. Um, otherwise, you know, just tennis players like, uh, like you and me, Cole, just yeah. you know, guys that are out there hitting some balls for fun and, and, uh, women, men, women, and, and, you know, some kids who are maybe struggling with pain and injury or just want to get better. And so, you know, now I, I work with tennis players like that. I had a guy, um, email me from my book the other day. He lives in Alabama and he'd read the book and he, he said, um, he said he was having still some shoulder problems that he, he was wondering about. And so I got to get on with him and did a zoom with him. And that was a lot of fun. And, you know, so it's rewarding, you know, just hearing from people who have read some of the book and, and uh, you know, want to talk about it or, or, you know, have, have stuff they're struggling with. So, you know, I think the best part of what I do now from a career standpoint is helping people out of pain and get back on the tennis court or get back to, you know, hiking or golfing or, or whatever activity, or just getting out of pain, you know, it's, it's rewarding. And I love that part about what I do now. It's, you know, it's about them and, and not about me. First, you know, 26 years of my life, all playing tennis was pretty much all about me. So it's, yeah. it's nice to switch gears. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to see if you touch on um, the book and, and kind of what inspired you to write it and, and when you wrote it and kind of what you've seen the results after publishing. That had to be so hard to write a book. I can't even imagine. I think you could do it. You could do it for sure. You know, I, <laughs> writing a book just takes, it just takes a desire. Um, it just takes a desire to get it out there. For me, it was kind of downloading two favorite parts of my life, tennis and um, and exercise therapy and putting it into one place. So um, I decided to write the book really when I, after I sold the clinic and when we moved to Georgetown, I had I'd started writing it before that, but but uh, when we moved to Georgetown and um, when I was not in San Francisco, um, you know, I was in Georgetown probably four or five days out of the week, and uh, and I just had time on my hands. Teresa was gone working, and so I just I spent that time diving into a project that was meaningful, and I wanted to help people who maybe were experiencing pain and maybe there was keeping their pain was keeping them or their injuries were keeping them off the tennis court. And, uh, and I had experienced that myself, obviously with my, my pain, my back pain and, and other injuries that I had had throughout my career. And so this was a way to help those people. And so, you know, I, I wrote the book as a way to, to, for people to help, uh, fix themselves really you get to give them some tools to get themselves um, out of pain and and hopefully able to prevent injury and maybe understand their bodies a little more really i should have titled i i, I put it in a tennis niche just as kind of a an ode to tennis and tennis players the book really applies to everyone and anyone um and you know i thought about making it you know more kind of ageless and painless rather than ageless painless tennis but uh, but I kept it in that niche, and it's funny because the um, no publisher wanted to touch it because they say, well, ten, it's a niche book. Nobody reads tennis books. And then the last, I said, all right, I actually rewrote the book to be just all encompassing rather than just for tennis. And I said, but I'm going to send it to this one last publisher, and I did. And the guy's like, oh, I love it, and that was that. So that's awesome. What is a great read? Yeah, I need to read it. Fred's, Fred's, Fred's thinking about uh, giving me and Keith the book for uh, a gift. I think that's a great idea, Fred. 
Appreciate yeah. that. I know. I was going to send <laughs> a couple of copies. I read it in like a day. It's like the fastest book I've, I've, I've never, I don't read much. And your <laughs> book, I read like that. And I just thought it was, it was really good. And the, the stories in there were awesome. And then obviously just all the exercises were so helpful. Cool. What's uh, is that, was that a hard process for you? Like knowing that your work was completed and then it's being reviewed by other people to see if you can make it to publish. Was that like, did you ever just like lose confidence that, you know, maybe this thing isn't, maybe this is a piece of junk and, and then somebody picked it up. Yes. Uh, not being, you know, not being schooled in journalism or that kind of thing. Yeah. You never know. You never quite know. I mean, I remember writing the first draft and, you know, I probably rewrote the first draft seven, eight, nine, ten times, wow. uh, you know, because always trying to refine it. But also there's this underlying fear and, or concern. I don't know. Maybe the right word is 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 worry um, that it's just not going to be good enough, that that someone's going to read it. And you're like, oh, my God, this is just total crap. And uh, and so, yeah, you just you don't know until, you know, and I, I figured I had. I had written, I knew the material was good. I just know if the, I didn't know if the writing was any good. And so, you know, starting to put it out there when I decided, all right, I've done all that I can do on my end. And I've just put it out to family and some close friends. And I said, I need your feedback. And I really need to know, I need your honest feedback. If it's total junk, I really want to know if it's total junk. If it's, if it's okay, if it's decent, then I want to know how I can improve it. If it's great, then let me know what's great about it so that I can build on that and make it better. Um, and so that was helpful. And I think just when you write a book, when you write something like that, you know, outside perspective and outside feedback is absolutely imperative. You just can't get anywhere without it because you don't, it sounds good. What may sound good to you may just not sound interesting at all to someone else. And that was, so that was part of the journey of the book. Um, but once I got it to a place, I, I, I hired an editor um, and uh, had him read it. He was an experienced writer. He'd written a bunch of books himself. And he also wrote for the San Diego Union Tribune. Um, his name is John Freeman. And he was, uh, was a great guy. And it was he after he read it and gave me feedback, then I knew and he had kind of done some editing on some, you know, it was more structure than, than it was content. Um, but he had helpful thoughts for content, too. But once he had gotten through it, then I knew, OK, this is a viable book. Here's a guy that writes for a living. He's good. He's an editor. You know, I know it's not total junk. And, uh, and so that was really helpful, you know? So I think when you write something like that, when you get it in the right hands, you get some confidence that, okay, I don't know who's going to read it, but I know that it's readable and I know someone's going to get something out of it. And, you know, I wrote it, I wrote it thinking, you know, I'm writing this for me first and foremost, because I enjoy it because I want to get this out. And if I can help one person with it, then this will be a success. Then it'll be a total success. And, uh, and that's how that's I feel about it. It's so, a great mindset to have. Yeah, I mean, that that's the idea. You know, you, you, you write it. A friend of mine told me, you know, you write a book for you because you enjoy it, because you want to get this out. Uh, uh, you know, it's an expression of you, essentially. And then, you know, if people enjoy it, if they read it, then that's wonderful. And it takes the pressure off. Um, and Cole, you had asked originally, you know, is it hard to put something out like you're putting yourself on the line? There were absolute moments and I actually had to sit down 
and and kind of face that fear of okay what if i put it out there and it's i get bad reviews i get you know people don't like it or they think it's you know whatever it's not it's not what they hope for um then you know how does that feel what does that look when i thought you know what if i it doesn't matter who doesn't like it what matters who is who does like it and that's how i kind of had to per, had to had to had to perceive it because like I said, there are always going to be people who don't love your book um, or your stuff or your tennis game or whatever the job you do in, in everyday life. There are going to be people who are, who aren't going to like it. You know, you can get stuck on that. And I just decided that, um, that despite that I would move forward and, and, you know, let them have their opinion. I can't control it, nor do I want to. And I'm proud of the work I've done and I'm glad I did it. And, uh, and like I said, that the I know now that it's helped some people, and that's fantastic. It's a good feeling. So I'm okay if someone doesn't like it. I hope they do. But <laughs> a work. Oh, that's that's good. I, I like that. It's uh, it's inspiring me to get it. I'll get it. I don't. I've been blessed with uh, no injuries, but that is a blessing for sure. That's uh, that's that's something I actually wanted to bring up. Um, so you've got the famed uh, Roger Federer. He's he's had his fair share of back injuries, um, and then you have Nadal as well. Uh, Nadal seems to me like a walking skeleton to me. I don't understand how uh, he's still able to compete on tour. Um, and just as an exercise therapist, how do you how do you guys how do you see these, these how these guys have this duration? Like, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think one is that they have a good team. I think you can't, you can't last long in that sport with a good team. And even with a good, without a good team, and even with a good team, there's no guarantee that you're going to last. So um, I think part of it is the people that they surround themselves with. Um, they surround themselves with, you know, people who are knowledgeable and, um, and can help them. I also think um, some of it is, I mean, you know, you know, Nadal has been playing with pain his whole career, basically. And, you know, so some of it is, is in Nadal's case, I think he's just learned to play under the, under those circumstances. I think he's learned to get through it and, you know, more power to him. Um, I, I think uh, the other part, you know, someone like Federer and someone like Djokovic, you know, I think they are blessed also with some limber, uh, limber bodies. You know, you've got, uh, you've seen the, you remember that famous, moment of Federer I think when he won his first Wimbledon and he falls back on the court and he fall and drops to his knees and he falls backwards so his back is on the court and he's sitting back on his knees and um and you look at that and you're like yeah that would probably rip every ligament in most people's knees just to do that but it was a a really defining moment in terms of in a window into Federer the amount of mobility we call it flexibility that Federer has and I think if there's there's one thing that I think can can improve or can can help anyone in any in any of their sporting careers, it's that you have to be flexible. You have your joint has to have full range of motion and mobility. And um, and as soon as you start to lose that, you run the real risk. Actually, I can say there's pretty much a guarantee you're going to get hurt at some point. And uh, and so, you know, from my perspective. Uh, Federer, Djokovic, those guys, um, 
I think they're blessed with limber bodies, but they also trained smart. Um, Djokovic, you, you know, he's, he's famous for stretching all day long. And I think his wife has complained about it. Like, oh, that's all he does is stretch. I mean, you know, and, uh, and that's impressive because not everybody does that. But I think, I think the awareness that, that flexibility is important is there. And I also think the awareness is coming more and more that the way you train is absolutely essential to, uh, to staying out there on tour. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of less is more. Uh, you know, you start getting to some of the heavier weights, start focusing on some of the um, some of the wrong muscles and uh, and especially at the wrong time. I think, you know, the way you train is going to can often get you injured. And I think so that goes back to what I was saying is you get the right you get the right people around you who you trust and who you believe in and who know their stuff. Um then I think you're in good hands. I think uh, as soon as you get in the hands of someone who just wants to make you bigger and stronger, uh, I don't love the mindset. I'm, I'm all for stronger. I'm not much for bigger. Um, I'm more for stronger and mo more mobile. And if you can combine those two things, I think that you have a recipe for success. If you um, lose mobility at the detriment of strength or you gain strength at the detriment of mobility, um, then you're in trouble. Yeah. Is uh Federer has always been like liquid, right? His game's always been elegant. Um, it's been so smooth and it's been that way for basically his entire career. Uh, I mean, he can play those longer points and grind a little bit more when he was younger. Um, but it's funny, funny you were saying that because I actually saw a picture of Nadal today on Twitter, just scrolling. And it said, Nadal training Australian Open 2007. And he looked like a running back. They, like he looked like he was about to go suit up in the NFL. And he was just, he had a shirt off. So naturally. And he's just got, he's just popping from everywhere on his, on his, uh, on his body. I'm just like, that cannot be sustainable. How can you get around the ball? Like, I just feel like it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And then you look at Djokovic. And I feel like Djokovic has sort of been the same his entire career. Um, I think with him, and it's documented that his diet changed. I think with him, it's that was a that was a big step for him. I'm sure he's done a bunch of other stuff, but and I think what he's feels like he's a vegan and he's gluten free. He's all these things. He's eating super clean. Um, that guy's like the Energizer Bunny that never stops. He will outlast you. Um, but it was just funny seeing that uh, picture in Nadal today. I can't, can't imagine, can't even remember him looking like that. Yeah, I remember, you know, he was wearing the uh, the sleeveless shirts and his biceps were just popping. And, you know, I remember, and then he'd give it the, come on, you know, vamos. And, you know, he's got this Schwarzenegger like bicep and like that is unbelievable. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, what can you say about Nadal? He's He's unique. Um, you know, he's, I, I wouldn't pattern if I was working with a player, I wouldn't pattern, you know, the training based on a doll's body. And having said that it's worked for him, you know, uh, say what you want. <laughs> it has worked for him. And, you know, one size does not fit all. And, uh, he's found, he, and he found a team early on that, you know, like I said, this is, he couldn't have done it without them. And, um, you know, yeah, he's worked through injury his whole career, but, um, but then again, he's also, he's still out there and he's, he's still playing and not, he's not just playing, he's winning.
And not there are a lot of people who can't say that anymore. That's for sure, especially at that level. Yeah, I think last question I've got here is, how do you think like technology and and the evolution of rackets and strings and and all that has kind of affected injury, whether it's prevention or, or causation? Like, I mean, you've probably played with a lot of different technology through your tennis career. And I don't know, do, is there anything that stands out to you? Well, I, I love the question because the, uh, the first thought I get is, um, one, I'm freaking old because, yeah, I started on, uh, on a wood racket, a little uh, Jack Kramer pro staff, and then the Bjorn Borg, um, Done. And so I don't think I switched off a wood racket until I was about 10 or 11. Uh, so, I mean, I was still pretty, pretty young, but, um, but yeah, I started with wood rackets. I think, I think a ton has changed in terms of stroke mechanics, obviously. Um, the thing about wood rackets is they're super heavy, um, but they also, because of the, the small sweet spot, um, you had to keep your racket on the ball a pretty long time. And that's why you see these Chris Everett type strokes, uh, you know, Bjorn Borg did it differently obviously. Um, but in general, these guys were chip and chargers, serve and volleyers, you know, the Arthur Ashe, Vita Scarolitis style, um, John McEnroe style, where you get to net and you're looking pretty good because topspin really wasn't that much of an option with those rackets. It just was much more difficult to produce, like I said, unless you're Bjorn. And he kind of changed it all in a way. But um, but I think that with the change in strings, with the change in rackets, as the strings, as the rackets have gotten bigger, as the strings have changed, you've changed the mechanics of the stroke entirely. So you think about a forehand um, way back when with the wood rackets, it's, um, I was taught, and maybe you were too, you hit from low to high. You start low and you brush up against the ball and you finish with your racket over your shoulder, right? And you catch the racket over your shoulder. I mean, that is tennis 101 in the 1970s and 80s. Right. And as soon as the racket started changing, then all of a sudden you've got and, you know, you see these strokes now where you've got these extreme grips. And so from a functional standpoint, you went from these continental grips, which are kind of a neutral or, or eastern grips, which were kind of more of a neutral grip, pretty easy on the arm. Technically, there's not much going on there. The arm goes back and then goes forward. Well, now with these extreme grips and with these rackets, you've got these strokes that start from high instead of low to high. We, we learned they start from high and they almost finish low. Hmm. Right? They finish down by the hip. And so you've got this start, which is way up here, where you've got you're grabbing the racket by the ear and then they're swinging through it. And there's all this torque and rotation in the forearm and the upper arm. So the demand of tennis has changed immensely i mean the demand on the body the demand on the shoulder the demand on the on the elbow on the wrist on the back um you know it's it's completely changed so from an injury standpoint you have to have a functional body going into tennis if you are if you are out of alignment out of balance inflexible not mobile in your joints the way that you need to be then this sport will eat you up you'll get injured quickly and this is one of the reasons why we see so many shoulder, wrist, um, elbow things these days. Um, but the other thing that's happened is that training has completely changed outside the sport where, you know, it's not just this, the strokes themselves. 
it's the off-court stuff has changed tremendously. And the thing about it is that our bodies are, um, we're not immune to too much demand. So you're on the tennis court, you play a couple hours. These guys now, they train off the court, in the gym, on the field. And so the cumulative stress on the body has, I don't know, probably increased 50-fold from the 70s and the 80s and the training back then. Um, and with all the weights and all the med balls and things, the stress on the joints and the back and everything is uniquely um, more. And then add that to the fact that you've got these bodies who have been playing tennis. These people have been playing tennis their whole lives without other sports often. And so they, they haven't developed balance in, uh, in, in other, in other parts of their body. And so, you know, tennis has become a year round sport for most, for all people at, at that level, obviously at any level that you want to, you want to be good at. And so it's a combination where our bodies are under siege our bodies are under stress. And so you better come with, with uh, a very flexible, very mobile body and stroke mechanics that, um, that are conducive to not breaking it down sooner than it needs to. And that's where a good coach like Freddie Mesmer comes in. Yeah. Freddie, is your body ready for tour yet? Tour season yet in, uh, in the summer? No, we're slowly ramping it up. That's why I got slowly to... ramping it up. Uh, I feel like I might need to simplify it for tonight's men's league and take the wood racket off the wall and just, just, you know, low to high it tonight save myself some strain before I go to bed. Well, you're probably, call, playing, man. probably playing against most of these guys that grew up with wood rackets in your league. Cole's playing in the men's sixties. He thought it meant 60. <laughs> That's awesome. 60 and over. <laughs> yep. I signed up for something and guess what? I'm not playing well either. Not performing. Well, all, all the more reason to switch to the Woody, man. And, <laughs> you, know, you never know what's going to happen. Number one, it's plus a, the pressure's off. True. It's a it's a a, ta, a Tad Williams, T M Williams or something. Davis, T, Tad Davis, I think it is. That's what the racket is. I haven't heard that one, but that's <laughs> you got to send pictures. I will. Uh, well, sweet. Well, thanks, David. Appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you guys. Good talking to you.